Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask you that you might open it to us now. God, that you would hold yourself out, that you would give yourself glory in our midst as we hear your word. And we pray that the Spirit would press home our need for Jesus and our hope in him. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, every now and then, people forget who the goat is, who the greatest of all time. And the goats of various sports or maybe bands have to every now and then come out of retirement or hiding and remind people. Whether you have a favorite band that hadn't played in a long time and then they put out an album and then they rem- people remember, oh yeah, the best band that's ever been around. Or if it's Michael Jordan with his flu game, uh, which we found out later is poison, uh, food poisoning, and he comes out and defeats the enemy. Or whether it's Tiger Woods coming back and winning the Masters again after years of hardship and difficulty. People have to be reminded who the greatest is. And that was true. That's true in sports. It's true in politics. It's true in business. And it's true spiritually. Even Israel had forgotten at times, many times it would seem, who the greatest is. They forgot that the Lord is his name. And in our passage this morning, God reminds them and reminds the people that live around them who the greatest of all time really is. The question is, what happens when God's people stop acting like God's people? What happens to God's name and his glory? Well, God will defend himself. He will defend his name. And he will purge his people and chastise them if necessary. This text this morning, if you take notes, the, the, the main thing that... that, that, that stuff is that we should glorify God as supreme. We should glorify God as supreme. There are three things in this text that really hold out the supremacy of God. In chapter 5, we see that we should recognize Yahweh is supreme. We should recognize that Yahweh is supreme. That's the first thing we'll think about. In chapter 6, verses 1 through 16... We're urged to respond to Yahweh's greatness, or sorry, his graciousness. Respond to Yahweh's graciousness. And then at the end of this narrative, there's a few verses at the end that tell us to respect God as holy. It's verses, chapter 6, verses 17 through 7-1. So glorify God as supreme. By recognizing Yahweh as supreme, responding to Yahweh's graciousness, and respecting God as holy. Let's think about recognizing God as supreme. Verse 1. After the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod, brought it into the temple of Dagon, and placed it next to his statue. There's three things that you need to know in order to make sense of where we're dropping into this narrative. If this was a Netflix series, this is season two, episode one. And it starts in Philistine territory in the city of Ashdod. But you've got to know what happened in season one to know why we're starting in that city. 
So three things you need to know. The first thing you need to know is when this happened. This happened during the period of the judges. So you'll know there's a book in the Bible, a few, few pages over, called Judges. And this is happening at the very end of that period. In fact, Samuel, who's going to be the priest, he's, he's, or the, the, new, the new prophet, he's going to judge. He's going to be the last judge in that era. But this is just at the beginning of his time. And Judges has a refrain in it that tells us all we need to know about that period. It's this. This is in Judges 21-25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. So in those days, people had the word of God. They had been delivered from Egypt. They were in the promised land, but they were in an era where there was disorganization. The, 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 the priests of the Lord sometimes taught the, the Bible, sometimes didn't. Uh, the people regularly engaged in idol worship. And so as a result, God regularly chastised them with an enemy from a, another, another town or another city over. Well, the Philistines are the people that God is now using to chastise Israel. The second thing you need to know is that the spiritual state of Israel was poor. It was poor. This is not a high moment in Israel's history. This is not one of those mountaintop experiences where Israel is, you know, batting a thousand and hitting 61 home runs in one year. Uh, The high priest himself was unfaithful. So, so, So the chief person who's supposed to lead Israel in following God and obeying his commands himself is not doing that. His sons that we read about in chapter two uh, were unbelievers. They didn't respect Yahweh. They didn't honor him. And in fact, they used the daily sacrifices as they came to, for themselves to engorge themselves and live like kings. They were even sleeping with women at the temple where the Ark of the Covenant rested. And hit their father, Eli, knew about it and didn't stop it. So those who were in charge, those who were, who were leaders, were corrupt themselves. Chapter 3, verse 1 tells us the word of the Lord by a prophet was rare in those days. So he was also chastising them by not sending his word among them. Uh, In chapter 4, we read of this bizarre episode where as they went out to fight the Philistines, they decided, somebody got the great idea, chapter 4, verse 3, we should bring the Ark of the Covenant into our battlefield and then that way we'll win which was a mark of them using God like an idol and a good luck charm. And so that episode leads to the Ark of the Covenant being captured by the Philistines and taken into the Philistine control, which is a major shock if you're following along. Finally, you'll see, if you keep reading this afternoon and you go into chapter 7, you'll see very clearly right away in verses 3 and 4 that they... The Israelites themselves had Canaanite deities and their female deities that go with the Canaanite gods in their homes. So they were Yahweh worshipers, but next to Yahweh, they would have a little statue to Baal and a little statue next to Baal, an Asherah. And this is what they bowed down to in their homes. Okay, the third thing you need to know is what is the ark? What is the ark of God? 
Well, the Ark of God was a gold-covered wooden box that housed the Ten Commandments. You remember the commandments that God gives to Moses at Sinai? And those came to rest inside the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant was a cover. And on that cover were two cherubim. These are warrior angels. And they were supposed to face one another and their wings spread out. And under it was the place where the blood of the atonement sacrifice would be laid inside the Holy of Holies, which is the inner chamber of the temple where God would meet with Israel. It was a sacred object, and because of what it was, it was never to be seen. In fact, whenever it was to be moved, the curtain that separated the inner chamber from the front chamber had to be taken down by the high priest and those that helped in the temple and laid over the, the, the uh, Ark of the Covenant, so that when it was moved, no one would lay their eyes on it. Later in the Bible, it's called the throne of God or the footstool of God himself. So it represented the throne of God in the middle of Israel. It housed the Ten Commandments. It's the place where the blood would be laid over the Ten Commandments to make atonement for the sins when people didn't live up to those commandments. And it was the place where God would speak from to minister to Israel. That's the ark. Well, the ark was captured by the Philistines. In chapter 4, going all the way through chapter 4 and ending in verse 1 of chapter 5, the ark of God was captured, is said, six times. It's meant to just say, can you believe what's happened? The ark has been taken. It's like saying the covenant is gone. God is gone. It's like saying that the Philistines marched in, took Yahweh, bound him in chains, and marched him back to their city. It's a shock. You'll notice at the end of chapter 4, the last verse, as the daughter-in-law of Eli, the high priest, as the family is, is dying under the judgment of God, she gives birth and dies in childbirth. And she says her final words, verse 22, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured. What she didn't know was that everything was happening, that it was happening had been planned by God himself. None of this was an accident. All of it was planned. God told Samuel that he was going to do this. In chapter 3, verse 11, he says, I'm going to do something in Israel that when people hear of it, their ears are going to tingle. It's one of those kind of events. So that's what leads us to this opening scene with the dust of the streets of Ashdod kicking up and people moving around and the Ark of the Covenant resting inside the temple of Dagon, their God. The Philistines, it says, took it back. And when it says that they placed it next to Dagon, this is them walking it back after the championship game and putting it in their trophy case. Dagon is their chief deity that they're worshiping at the time. He's not the only one, but he's their chief one. And he would have been up on a platform in some sort of a small room. And in that room, anybody that they defeated, any small gods that they would collect from their enemies, they'd bring them in to show our God vanquished these gods. Because in the ancient Near East, the idea of warfare was always spiritual warfare. 
Any army that went another, against another army, even though the battle was happening on the ground, the idea was in the sky, the invisible deities are battling one another. And whosoever God is stronger, well, that's who won on the battlefield. So the Philistines believe that Yahweh has been defeated by Dagon. And as a trophy, they take the most sacred object in Israel's worship and they put this object in front of Dagon up on a platform to show Yahweh is now serving Dagon. Well, if you're following along in the Bible, you know that that's not going to stand. If you're keeping score at home, it looks like the game's over. It's late in the fourth quarter. The visiting team is already cracking the bottles and putting on their championship hats. But as the Philistines carried their trophy back to their home stadium... What they didn't realize is that Yahweh was in the middle of his best play that was going to turn the entire thing upside down. They took the ark right into the inner chamber of their captain, Dagon. And this was perfect for what Yahweh was intending to do. Look at verse 3. When the people of Ashdod got up early the next morning, there was Dagon. Fallen with his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. Now don't miss the symbolism. Dagon is up on a platform, most likely. And Yahweh is down in front of him in order, so to speak, uh, in front of him so that he is supposed to be serving Dagon. But when the Ashdod priests get up, Dagon is now on the ground prostrate facing Yahweh. Interestingly, though, look at the last line. So they took Dagon and returned him to his place. This is divine humor. God has a sense of humor. And he lies the the idol prostrate in front of him showing, which is a universal sign of paying homage. This is unmistakable. But the Ashto-Dagon priests don't think to themselves wait a minute, what's going on? Instead, they, they get a group of people together. It's interesting that it's they took Dagon. It, it took several of them. Their God is so powerful, it took many to lift up and put him back on his pedestal. What are they thinking as they walk out and kind of say, that was strange. Good thing we got him back up on his platform. Well, the next day, verse 4. But when they got up early the next morning, there was Dagon, fallen with his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. This time, Dagon's head and both of his hands were broken off and lying on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso remained. Dagon is decapitated this time. And his hands are broken off as a symbol of strength. You remember all through, even in scripture, the right arm of God, the, 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 arms, the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, right? The, the arms of God represent his strength, his power, his sovereign providential activity on behalf of his people. Obviously, you know what a head stands for. And so here is Dagon with just the torso left. The hands, which represent his power, have been dismembered. And his head separated from his body. Dagon was defeated without a battle. 
Now this leads to more superstition. Verse 5, it says, That's why still today the priests of Dagon and everyone who enters the temple of Dagon and Ashdod do not step on Dagon's threshold. This is a common uh, superstition that pervades all of humanity all over the earth. All, all ancient civilizations, even our own, the tradition of picking up your bride uh, to, to cross the threshold comes from these ideas that there are demonic evil spirits that gain access to a home or a building through the threshold. And so you lift up your skirt so you don't drag a demon with you or you lift up your bride symbolically so that, so that her dress doesn't scrape the ground and you enter in safely. Well, in Ashdo, they apparently adopted this after this had happened because this is startling to them. But it doesn't dawn on them that Yahweh is supreme. Their idolatry and their superstitions only increase. So, verse 6, the Lord is going to get the message clearly out. It says, the Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod. He terrified the people of Ashdod and its territory and afflicted them with tumors. When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, the ark of Israel's God must not stay here with us because his hand is strongly against us and our God, Dagon. Chapter 6, verse 1 tells us that the time period of this whole episode was seven months long. The whole time while the ark was there until it returned to Israel. So sometime over the course of a couple months, the city began to suffer from a plague that's caused, that caused some sort of boils and painful, painful sores and death that was traveling through. We learn as we keep reading that some were dying because of all of this. In chapter 6, verse 4, we're going to find out, we're going to read uh, when we get there, that they make mice, indicating that there were mice involved. So some speculate that this is an early example of bubonic plague that was happening in this town. Others suggest that it's a dysentery disease that the mice were spreading as they ate the crops and, and spread a disease that then was being digested and eaten through the city. Either way, the timing of all of this is happening ever since they bring in the ark of God. The bottom line is that painful sores, tumors, death, and mice are everywhere and their land is being destroyed. So this leads them to make a very rational decision. We should remove the ark. So that's what we read in verse 7 and 8. And what we read here when they say... Well, read verse 8. It says, So they called the Philistine rulers together and asked, What should we do with the ark of Israel's God? The ark of Israel should, Israel's God should be moved to Gath, they replied. So they moved the ark of Israel's God. Three times we're going to read that the ark has to move. What should we do about this? Move the ark. Let's get it out of here. Get this God away from us. So, verse 9, they moved it to Gath, but the same thing happens there. After they had moved it, the Lord's hand was against the city of Gath, causing a great panic. He afflicted the people of the city from the youngest to the oldest with an outbreak of tumors. So, what do they do in Gath? The same thing they did in Ashdod. They said, we should move it to Ekron. The Philistines had five major cities. 
big sort of capital cities. Each one had its own king, its own ruler of that. There were city-states, a collection of five city-states that made up this whole territory. And they had villages that would surround each city. And what this text is telling us is that wherever the ark went, the plague that followed the ark happened in the city and in the territories. And so now they're moving it to a third one that's closest actually to Israel, to Ekron. But notice what the Ekronites do in verse 10. The people of Gath then sent the ark of God to Ekron, but when it got there, the Ekronites cried out, they've moved the ark of Israel's God to kill us and our people. Verse 11, the Ekronites called all the Philistine rulers together and they said, send the ark of Israel's God away. The Ekronites see what's happening and they say, oh no, you don't. It's not coming here. So the whole episode comes to this climax in verses 11 and 12 when, when the, the whole, all of them are gathered together. All the, Philist, the five Philistine rulers are gathered together and they, they agree together, we shouldn't keep this. It needs to go. The question is, is how, how and what should we do? And that's what chapter, we're going to see in chapter 6. But what is God saying to the Philistines and to us and to Israel through this passage? Well, he's telling us that God is not dependent on anyone to rescue him and give him glory. God is able to raise up children from the rocks, Jesus said. God is working on his own terms among the nations, even when his people fail to glorify him. Church, God doesn't need us to proclaim Jesus. He invites us to participate And what he's doing. His agenda of spreading his glory from one end of the earth to the other will be accomplished. When the spiritual forces of darkness appear to be their strongest, it's then that they're actually weak. Christian, God wants to remind you that he is supreme. And when it looks like his power has waned and the darkness of idol worshipers has eclipsed his glory and his power... Nothing of the sort has happened. God is supreme and will vindicate himself. Moses said to Israel on the edge of the Red Sea as they panicked, he said, you only have to be quiet and stand still. One of my favorite verses. Some translations basically say, you should shut up. At the cross, God himself was put to death in what looked like the defeat of God. But it was actually through the cross that Jesus defeated Satan. The death of Jesus was the death of Satan. We read earlier in Colossians 2 verse 15 that through his cross, which is the crucifixion of the Son of God, the principalities and powers, the unseen forces of darkness and evil spirits and the gods of this age that war against God were disarmed through his cross. Just when Satan, in his foolishness, seeks to uh, usurp the throne of God by killing the Son, God uses that to crush Satan. And this is the way God works. All through the Psalms, you see the psalmist praying and crying out to God that he says, my enemies have set nets for me. They have dug pits for me. Let them fall in them. And this is what God does. God, more often than not, works through subversive methods 
to upend the powers of darkness and the evil forces and the ills of our societies. He, he causes panic where there is peace. You remember Haman in Esther's day who builds a gallows to hang Mordecai on. But at the end, it's Haman who's hanging from the rope. This is how God often defeats his enemies. And Paul would remind us as Christians to be strengthened by his vast strength, taking up the full armor of God in Ephesians 6. God often defeats his enemies in subversive ways. He lets the ark be taken into Philistine temples only to make their gods bow down before him. God is always working. And when it seems like the wicked are winning, they aren't. When it looks like God has been defeated, he hasn't. When it looks like God needs a rescue, he doesn't. God is among the nations glorifying himself and saving people for his glory in spite of what it looks like to us or even to them. He did it in Egypt. He did it later in Babylon. He did it in Roman-occupied Jerusalem. He did it in the Reformation. He did it in China when they kicked out all the missionaries and the church exploded. He's doing it right now in North Korea. He's doing it in Russia today and in Ukraine. And the church is thriving in Iran and growing under oppression. God doesn't need anybody to pave a way for him because he is supreme. I remember meeting a man in Novosibirsk, Russia. I got to go on a mission trip there towards, towards the end of my college days. And we were there working with some missionaries. And I met a man who had come to faith under Soviet communism. And it was amazing to hear his story because he had told us how Stalin and those who came after him had systematically tried to erase all evidence of Christianity from the nation he said prior to Stalin and prior to the Soviet Revolution, streets themselves were named uh, after Orthodox priests and different Christian uh, saints that they honored. But Stalin had changed all of the names so that people who were born after that didn't even know what streets uh, they used to be called. But this man came across an old map in a library. And when he came across the old map, he noticed that the streets were Christian saints which led him to begin looking up who these people were. And as he did, he found scripture cited in explaining who they were and what they did. And this led him to a faith in God and calling out to Jesus. And the day I met him, he was an old man, and he was sharing how God had saved him in the midst of extreme oppression of, of, of people actively trying to hide, to hide, to hide, hide. and he found, he found the Lord. God does. God is self-sufficient. He is supreme. And he wanted to remind Israel, and he wants to remind you and me today, of who he is. Now we laugh at the Philistines putting up their God, but don't we do the same thing? When God comes and he subversively erodes the ground that our gods and our idols and the things we hope in stand on and he frustrates us and we keep going, why is this? And set it back up on its platform. I wonder what that is for you. I wonder what ways you think that God is not self-sufficient. And you need to repent of those things. Well, the second thing God wants us to see so that we would 
see him as supreme is he wants us to respond to his graciousness. He wants us to respond to his graciousness. In, 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 in light of everything that we've already seen here, God should just be doing away with us. But actually what God does is he brings himself back into the midst of Israel symbolically. He never actually left them. But so that they would understand, he does this episode. Look at chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. It says, when the ark of the Lord had been in Philistine territory for seven months, the Philistines summoned the priests and the diviners and pleaded, what should we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we can send it back to its place. And they replied, if you send the ark of Israel's God away, don't send it without an offering. Send back a guilt offering to him and you will be healed. The reason his hand hasn't been removed from you will be revealed. And they asked, what guilt offering should we send back to him? And they answered, five gold tumors and five gold mice, corresponding to the number of Philistine rulers, since there was one plague for both you and, and your rulers. Make images of your tumors and of your mice that are destroying the land. Give glory to Israel's God and perhaps he will stop oppressing you, your gods and your land. Why harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened theirs when he afflicted them? Didn't they send Israel away and Israel left? The biggest sign of the Philistine lostness is is that they continually want to send him away. Now we understand it. They're suffering. Many are dying. There's a plague among them. There are literally mice all over the place. And it all happened when they brought the ark into their territory. So we we completely understand. But the proper response to the fear of the Lord is to humble yourself in repentance towards him. It is to forsake your gods. It is to forsake your idols. It is to reform yourself towards him in faith. It is to come under him. As the Lord. When you see Dagon lying prostrate before Yahweh, you should say, Well, then Yahweh is supreme. But they don't do that. The Philistines, however, do show more theological acuity than Israel does, however. They demonstrate their spiritual blindness and their accountability at the same time. They show their accountability in several ways. First of all, they admit that they have desecrated the ark. That's why they recognize that they need to send a guilt offering. They recognize we have offended Yahweh. We have desecrated his ark, which is why we need to get it out of here. And so send a guilt offering. You don't give a guilt offering if you don't believe you're guilty. So they recognize that. They're also aware of what God had done in Egypt. Now, their understanding is garbled by their by their paganism. In chapter 4, verse 8, they refer to the God of Israel who delivers them from Egypt as the gods of Israel. But this wasn't their first hearing of him. And that's the point. They had heard what God had done for Israel. They had been fighting and oppressing Israel for quite some time now. And so they were aware of who the Israelites worshipped. They had heard of Yahweh. This might be their first real encounter with him, but they, had, they were aware of what he was like. 
in verse 5, they recognized that they should give him glory. Look again at what it says. Make images of your tumors and of your mice that are destroying the land. Give glory to Israel's God. And then in verse 6, they, they urge one another, don't harden your heart. <laughs> Learn the lesson. Hey, let's look at Egypt and see what fools they were. They kept on going with, with Yahweh. Well, let's not be like that. Send it back. So they show accountability and theological acuity in several ways. But they also show that they are spiritually blind still. First of all, they call their diviners to do divination to figure out what they should do. They call for the priests and the diviners to use whatever tarot cards they can find, stick crossings, or whatever magic they might have at their disposal. And you might say, well, what else would they do? Well, they could go next door. 12 miles to the east and talk to someone in Israel and find a priest there. And what they come up with is they devise a plan that's sympathetic magic. So they make images of the things that are bothering them and they send it back sort of as a token to acknowledge what has happened. They also, in doing so, they make animal images to God, something that God had told Israel never to do. Not to make any likeness of things created or on the earth and animals and so forth and present them in worship to the Lord. The biggest, though, is that they don't give up their idolatry. You see them there in chapter 6, in verse 5, towards the end. It says, perhaps he will stop oppressing you, your gods, and your land. They only do what so many of us do. They responded to the symptoms And not the root cause. They do a halfway repentance. What's the bare minimum we have to do to get out from under the trouble that I'm in? And that never goes well. Because that's not what repentance looks like. My favorite Old Testament commentator and uh, writer is Ralph Davis Jr. And he comments on this passage in this way. He says, while God didn't tell them everything about him, he did give them some truth. And they were responsible for rightly responding to the truth they did receive. Yahweh had stooped to show them. In terms they could understand that he himself had destroyed their God, their land, and their bodies. Now what will they do with that revelation? Should they not turn and at least begin to serve or fear this obviously real and living God? Or will they go back to Ashdod and take Dagon to the local image shop for repairs? Maybe they will lobby the five lords to fund research and development of rat and mice pesticides. Some of the elite may slap Survivor of the Plague 1070 bumper stickers on their chariots. Perhaps the majority simply sighed, well, I'm glad that's over. It's so easy for us sinners, Philistine or otherwise, to respond only to the pain And not to the truth of a situation. Is there anything in your life where you're just trying to deal with the symptoms? But God is pressing on a root sin that he wants you to actually repent from. Maybe you're at church. You are sort of entertaining worship with God. But you won't submit your life to him. You won't come up underneath his rule. 
you won't give up your own gods and the things that you cling to for power and for strength and give you independence. God is calling you through this passage to repent all the way. Is it not the case in America today that this is the state that we're in? Isn't our society afflicted with terror? The ills of our society are physical, mental, financial, social, familial. Our children languish. Children languish under anxiety. Teenagers swear at their teachers. Some of them say hateful, horrible things to them. Young men shoot up schools. Our marriages, if they happen at all, are only temporary. Sexual sin is accompanied by sexual disease. But we don't ever even ponder forsaking sexual sin, but only ask what can we do about the disease. Our financial situation is a hollow shell, and yet we just keep seeking a new bandage, printing more money, and kicking things down the road. A new bandage, a new pill. We celebrate pluralism, which is a euphemism today for getting past Christianity. And while the rest West crumbles, it asks, should we not send Christianity and its God away? There is a warning of repeating history here for all the nations of the world. But there's also an amazing demonstration of God's grace. God stooped into the culture and the ideas of a people to clearly reveal himself. His name was known to them, Yahweh. The ark was in their midst, and it housed the Ten Commandments. They lived next door to Israel. God sent a plague, but he didn't kill them all. And then in verses 7 through 16, he makes it even more plain. They come up with the idea of sending it back in a way that's unmistakable. That it was indeed Yahweh who oppressed them. Look at verse 7. Now then, prepare one new card and two milk cows that have never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the ark, but take their calves away and pin them up. Take the ark of the Lord, place it on the cart, put the gold objects that you're sending him as a guilt offering in a box beside the ark, send it off and let it go its way. Then watch, if it goes up the road to its homeland toward Beth Shemesh, it is the Lord who has made this terrible trouble for us. However, if it doesn't, we will know that it was not his hand that punished us. It was just something that happened to us by chance. The men did this. They took two milk cows, hitched them to the cart, confined their calves in the pen. Then they put the ark of the Lord on the cart, along with the box containing the gold mice and the images of their tumors. The cows went straight up the road to Beth Shemesh. They stayed on the one highway, lowing as they went, never strayed to the right or to the left. The Philistine rulers were walking behind them to the territory of Beth Shemesh. The people of Beth Shemesh were harvesting wheat in the valley, and when they looked up and saw the ark, they were overjoyed to see it. The cart came to the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there near a large rock. 
The people of the city chopped up the card and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites removed the ark of the Lord along with the box containing the gold objects and placed them on the large rock. And that day the people of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices to the Lord. And when the five Philistine rulers observed this, they returned to Ekron that same day. Well, what does he do? God humbly goes along with their plan. And, and, and well, I'll comment on this in just a minute. I was, there's several points here that highlight the authenticity of this text that I, I want to point out to you. But before I comment on those, just notice that these oxen have never been yoked before. The plan is from an agrarian society, so they, they understand how this works. These are, these are animals who have not been trained. They, they've never had a yoke on them, so, so they need to be instructed in this. They need to plow some, and they need to be guided and goaded in order to learn how to do this. So oxen who've never been yoked are likely to not cooperate with their plan. At the same time, they have calves that have not been separated from them. And so they're going to be put back in the pen and locked up. So the sound of the calves is going to be crying for their mothers, which would naturally make these, ca- these oxen want to go that way. So their plan is if they ignore all of that and they go up the road, we'll know. And God does exactly that. It's as though his hand is on these oxen and he guides them. And it said, it, it, it's, plain, it's plain in the text. They never veer to the right or to the left as they go. So that God is speaking in their language. And he's, he's, he's agreeing with them. And allowing their plan to succeed to reveal himself. That's the graciousness of God. Isn't that amazing? Now, if you're a skeptic, and as you, as you read this and you think, well, I don't know, this just seems so primitive and so crazy. I, I, I don't even know if I think this even happened. Well, I just want to point out that there's, there's mul- multiple things here that highlight the authenticity of this text. First of all, everything we know about the Philistine material culture is here. Five city-states ruled by five rulers who worshipped a pantheon of gods. And archaeology bears all of that out right next to Israel. These towns that are mentioned are known to us, including Beth Shemesh. You might say, well, how do we know what went on there? Well, we read throughout the text, and you see in the material culture of Israel and Philistine that, that, that they constantly traded and mixed, which means they talked to one another. So people, no doubt, shared what happened. Because that's what people do. You can imagine them later. It says, says that any time that Israel needed to get... Their plowshares sharpened. They had to go to Philistine territory to get them sharpened. And so there they are, and they're going, man, what happened over here? Well, didn't you hear? And of course these things would be repeated, and of course they would be shared. The god Dagon is actually a Ugaritic god that's, that's local to Palestine in the Canaanite territory. This is not a god that the Philistines would have had in Greece where they came from. Which means that they adopted the local deity of the territory that they were in, which is what ancient people did. They didn't bring Dagon. Dagon is not a natural god for the Philistines, but he is a natural god to the Canaanites, and that's where the Philistines had moved. And then here they are with this agricultural society, and they're, they're acting like people who think this way. It's everywhere. These are all little details that you miss if you write this later and you're trying to come up with a story to validate your God. 
the Philistines were under great spiritual darkness. They were groping in the darkness, guessing at what God requires. But in God's graciousness to them, not only did he speak their language and reveal himself and go along with their plan, but he didn't kill them for things that he said he would kill people for in the law of Moses. Think about it. They looked at the ark. We'd have to be crazy to think they didn't look in the ark at the Ten Commandments. Who wouldn't do that? (laughs) They touched the ark. They desecrated it. They made images to offer to him in worship. Something God said never to do. And yet, God didn't hold them accountable for what they didn't know. Sometimes we can get hung up on what people without God's word and the world know and what are they responsible for. And one thing to do is just to say, I trust the Lord. And I trust that he will judge justly. Romans 1, however, tells us that everybody knows quite a bit. Enough to condemn us and enough to be conscious and suppress it so as to avoid the revelation that God gives. But, there, but here in this passage, we also see one example in God's kindness to us of how God has not left the nations in total darkness. This is one seven-month episode in one nation's history, but it highlights the silent revelation God has been giving throughout the world across time, a revelation that people reject consistently. It is only by the grace of God that anyone turns to him. We need his revelation of himself and we need our hearts to be regenerated and turn towards him to receive his revelation and repent from our idols. However, don't miss what God didn't do to them. They did all of this and they did it wrong, but he didn't wipe them out here. This is a demonstration of the graciousness of God. They were held responsible for the revelation that they had and that's what they will be judged by. What will God judge this generation by? Jesus said of of his generation, he said, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and the people of that day will rise up in judgment against the people of Jesus' day because Jesus, the Son of God, was in their midst and did miracles right in front of their very eyes and they still didn't believe in him. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this passage is telling you Don't harden your heart. It's telling you, give glory to God through Jesus, his son. It's telling you to hear of God's gracious sacrifice on the cross and his revelation of himself through Jesus to bring you to himself, to sacrifice his son for your sins and your idolatry so that you could know him. Don't miss that. Don't mistake God's graciousness for knowing him. A lot of times people, when you, when you talk to someone who doesn't know the Lord, but they know that you do, they will often tell you th- ways in which God has been kind to them. And it's, it's so great to hear. And it's, it's, it's great to point out and agree with them. Man, I see the grace of God in your life. But what I often hear when people share those things is, is they mistake those things where God spared them or God did this obvious thing in their life as they, is that they know God and they're okay with him. When they've never repented, they don't worship the Lord, they don't follow him with their lives, and they're relying on being saved in a car wreck or something like that. 
When in reality, it's those very things that are going to judge them in the last day. Their own words will accuse them before the Lord when he says, yes, and you knew that it was me who did that for you. And yet you still didn't repent. Don't mistake the kindness and the graciousness of God for knowing him. We must repent and believe in him. You have to turn because God is holy. That's what the Philistines missed. That's also what Israel was missing. And that's what he says to us in this last few verses here at the end. He tells us to respect God as holy. In verse 17, we read, As a guilt offering to the Lord, the Philistines had sent back one gold tumor for each city. Ashdod, Gaza, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. The number of gold mice also corresponded to the number of Philistine cities of the five rulers the fortified cities and the outlying villages. The large rock on which the ark of the Lord was placed is still in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh today. God struck down the people of Beth Shemesh because they looked inside the ark of the Lord. He struck down 70 persons. And the people mourned because the Lord struck them with a great slaughter. The people of Beth Shemesh asked, Who is able to stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom should the ark go from here? And they sent messengers to the residents of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and get it. So the people of Kiriath-Jerim came for the ark of the Lord and took it to Abinadab's house on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to take care of it. Well, the narrative isn't quite over because Israel still has to learn their part. What was God doing for his people through all this? Well, he was purging them of their idolatry. The sad reality is that Israel was in a similar kind of spiritual state as the Philistines. And you'll notice that they treated the ark the same way the pagans did. Only they were judged for it. When the ark came to their place, they they rejoiced to see it. But sadly, this came to a city that was designated as a priestly city. It was full of priests. This is a Levite town. These are people who know, teach, and read God's word and are are responsible for handling the sacrifices. So it went to the right city. But when it got there, people apparently treated the ark as as an interesting curiosity. And they either, some translations translate it like, like the CSB here, that they looked inside, which is a gross overstep. And any Levite knew that. Or, more likely, what, what, what many people think is that they, they, were, they were just like inspecting it. They, got, they were getting up close and everybody's gathered around and sort of pointing out all the carvings on it and the gold and looking at the wings of the cherubim and just gazing on it and treating it like a curiosity. They had been instructed through the law not to do this. So they died. Because God is holy. And he will be treated as holy. He will be glorified as the Holy One of Israel. And the people of Israel, of all people, should know that. They were told and they were graciously warned over and over again. And yet they treat the Lord with contempt. And on their lips after this is the same phrase that the Philistines are saying. The ark needs to move. Get this holy God away from us. 
And so they cry out, come down and get it to the people of the next town over. Church, when God's people don't honor God as holy, he will purge his church. Don't grieve for Jesus when the church is exposed for sin. God is not concerned to keep up our reputation in the world. And he doesn't need us to have a good reputation in America for him to glorify himself. And so if the church is full of sin, it needs to come out. And so sometimes we see churches corrupted. We see financial scandals. We see sexual scandals. We see pastors that are unfaithful that fall and it should happen. And it is grievous when it happens, but don't let that shake your faith. Let it remind you that the Lord is holy and he sees everything and no one's getting away with anything. And the Lord will be regarded as holy. It is possible to be in the community of God's people and sit in spiritual darkness. One can be a priest of Yahweh or a pastor and a preacher of God's word and not know his word or teach his people. You can be in the church and not want God to rule over you. You can be among his people and claim the name of Christ, but never bear the love of Jesus in your heart. You should fear the Holy One of Israel and repent. God is holy. And without the grace of God, we will experience his holiness and death. But praise be to God, there is an answer to the question, who is able to stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? It is Jesus, his son. Jesus stands as our high priest, faithful to the end, with no sin and with no blemish and no scandal. And he offers the right sacrifice and he can look at the face of God directly and not die. That's our priest. And he stands there and it's he who makes us stand in him. Glory be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that profound truth that you are holy, you are supreme, and you are gracious. We praise you, Lord Jesus, for making us able to stand by the blood of your cross. And we pray that we would stand. In Jesus' name, amen.